Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. There's a link to it at the site. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at brand new movies, either out in theaters, on VOD, streaming services, what have you. You can check that out at Quipster.net. Today, we're going to get into a new three-part series of films of the 1980s. We just covered three teenage vampire movies, and this one is also going to be a vampire movie of a sort. Not quite the vampires that we traditionally know, although it kind of qualifies as a teenage vampire movie, too, because the woman who plays a vampire in this film was 19 at the time that she portrayed the main vampire. The film I'm talking about is called Life Force. It's a film from 1985. This film is going to be kicking off a three-part series in which we look at aliens that are encountered and then end up killing just about everybody on board a spaceship. You know, an alien killing machine, essentially. So you can probably anticipate where I'm going to go after this one, I'm sure. Toby Hooper is the director of Life Force. It also stars Steve Railsback, Peter Firth, Frank Finley, Matilda May, Patrick Stewart in one of his more crazy roles, Michael Gothard, Nicholas Ball, Aubrey Morris, the screenplay credited to Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacoby. It's based on a novel by Colin Wilson called The Space Vampires. It's an R-rated film. It does have nudity, and boy, does it have nudity. There's sexual content in here, gore, violence, and language. The runtime is, well, it depends on which cut you watch, but the one that I watched was an hour and 56 minutes. That's the international cut, by the way. The American cut ran actually quite a bit shorter, and I'll get into the reasons why during the course of this review. Now, Toby Hooper is the director here. This is a very ambitious and downright strange effort for him. It was made for the Canon Group, and Life Force is based off of a deliberately Lovecraftian 1976 novel from Colin Wilson, as I mentioned, The Space Vampires, and that had a reputation of being just as weird as this film, although narratively it probably made a little bit more sense. The controlling shareholders in the Canon Group, Golan Globus, had been wanting to make The Space Vampires for several years into a film form. I mean, starting back in 1980, they had plans to put this out into theaters, but things never quite added up. They didn't have the right elements in place to do it. Now, as far as the plot goes here, we find a space shuttle mission that's being co-funded by American and British space agencies. They're traveling to explore Halley's Comet up close. And while they're up there, they soon make a discovery that there is this strange structure, this alien ship that's hiding in the comet's coma, So they go on board this ship to investigate, thinking this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They're not going to wait for Halley's Comet to come again 75 years from now, because they'll all be dead by then. So seizing the opportunity while they can, they go on board, and then they find desiccated bat-like creatures, and eventually they find three naked human beings, or humanoid beings, I should say. There's a woman and two men. They're seemingly in this perpetual state of sleep, of cryogenic sleep of some sort, even though it's not quite accurate to call it that. They're all encased in these individual glass sarcophagus-like pods. They bring those pods and those humanoids on board to study, but things end up going awry in ways that we don't quite learn about until the pods are brought down to the European Space Research Center in London on Earth. The shuttle mission's sole human survivor, a man named Colonel Tom Carlson, played by Steve Railsback, he also makes his way to Earth. 
and he spins this very crazy tale about what happened on board the spaceship, the Churchill. And he ends up trying to help with this mission to track down the space vampires who make their escape and begin to wreak havoc on an unsuspecting London and potentially the rest of the planet. Now, Life Force, as I mentioned, was adapted to the screen by Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacoby. If O'Bannon sounds familiar to you, if you're a science fiction fan, he's certainly no stranger, especially to the genre, uh, subgenre of a space mission gone awry. I mean, he penned the screenplay for a very playful film back in the 70s called Dark Star, as well as a hit space chiller that would become an all-time classic, 1979's Alien. O'Bannon had worked with Jacoby on three films during the mid-1980s. This was the middle one. The others were 1983's Blue Thunder, a very underrated action gem from the 1980s, and the follow-up film from Toby Hooper after this one, 1986's remake of Invaders from Mars. Invaders from Mars was the second of a three-picture deal between Hooper and Canon Films because he was very successful coming off of Poltergeist. They wanted to offer him a three-picture deal with them because they thought that he was going to be the director that was going to give them inroads to bigger commercial success. I mean, they had him slated as one of that three-picture deal to film Spider-Man. That never quite manifested because of financial troubles for Canon Films for a variety of reasons. And that will be a recurring theme as I talk about Canon Films throughout the course of this podcast. The actual end of that three-picture deal was the director's long-awaited sequel to the film that first put him on everyone's radar, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Now, despite Hooper's success in the horror genre, he wasn't Canon's first choice for Life Force. The original intent was to give the reins over to Michael Winner, Michael Winner was mostly known for his lucrative Charles Bronson films that he did with Canon, including the Death Wish series, which, by the way, screenwriter Don Jacoby had just written the screenplay for Death Wish 3 just the year before for Winner, but he wasn't credited as that. He was credited as Michael Edmonds. He changed his name because he was objecting to the extensive rewrites that were done on his film after the fact. Michael Winner had been trying to option the film from Golden Globus to make with the De Laurentiis group, but the asking price to take it over from Golan and Globus was just way too high. They decided to partner up instead, but then it took a little too long. Michael Winner would eventually grow disinterested, and so did De Laurentiis eventually. So Golan Globus had to go it alone. They really still were keen on making this film. Now, some have compared what happens in the film of Life Force to an old Hammer horror film called Quartermass and the Pit. It came out in the late 1960s. It was released in the United States as Five Million Years to Earth. You may know it as that title. Indeed, it was Toby Hooper's intention all along. He was a huge fan of the Quartermass stories that were told on television and films from the 1950s and 60s. He grew up on these things. So he really, given that he was given the green light to make the film any way he saw fit, he wanted to use Life Force to pay homage to these old Hammer horror films. He was inspired by the British production team and the actors. He shot it in England for the first time in his career at famed Elstree Studios, no less, where it took up several massive sound stages. And they had to compete for space at that time with the likes of other big films like Ridley Scott's Legend and Return to Oz. Toby Hooper ordered additional screenwriters to be brought in to make a few changes to the adaptation including changing the asteroid belt from the novel to Halley's Comet. He felt that Halley's Comet was much more topical to the news that was going on in the world 
Everyone was eagerly anticipating Haley Comet's arrival in 1986. That's the first time in 75 years. He also wanted it to be set in 1986 instead of the novel's mid-21st century setting because he felt that setting the film too far in the future put a lot of emphasis on the hows and whys of life in the mid-21st century, and he felt that that was going to eventually distance the audience from the nature of the more immediately personal and the horrific relationships at the heart of the story. He felt horror needs immediacy. Science fiction has more distance. So he felt he wanted to develop those horror elements much more to the story. The novel's author, Colin Wilson, he detested all of these changes. In fact, there was a quote from him in his autobiography. John Fowles had once told me that the film of The Magus was the worst movie ever made. After seeing Life Force, I sent up a postcard telling him I had gone one better. Now, Wilson in particular hated the chopping out of the entire buildup of the film. He thought that if you jump into the middle of the story, there's really nowhere interesting that you're going to be able to go from there. He felt the buildup was definitely necessary, and by almost taking it completely out, they were doing the story a big disservice. Now, because Toby Hooper was overscheduled and Cannon was running out of money, his odd onset behavior became a highlight. It was very notorious. A lot of people speculated he was coked out or drunk or what have you. He was approachable. I mean, Patrick Stewart said that he was his favorite of the directors he had worked with, at least up to that point. He never got to shoot all of the scenes he wanted for this film, though, because that money, that time was completely ticking down. And that resulted in a number of compromises to the story that were intended to be put into the overall story never did get to be made because Cannon was very antsy for him to wrap it up. It was going on six months of a shoot here. Hooper did manage to put together something he felt was going to be workable enough to produce a 128-minute cut of the film, despite Hooper having the green light for the entire shoot. That green light did not carry over into the post-production decisions, especially when the distributor, TriStar Pictures, saw the final product. TriStar felt that Hooper's cut was just too long. They especially thought it took too long to get going to the good parts of the film. They ordered several big cuts to the mostly dialogue-free scenes aboard the space shuttle at the beginning of the film to give the story a better pace that they felt would avoid those early lulls and take people out of the story. And nevertheless, due to these decisions, some of these scenes would have to be redubbed. They had to be rescored. Some of the actors were no longer available. They had their voices dubbed by obvious other voice actors. And that gave Life Force the B-movie feel that Canon had been trying to avoid the whole time because they wanted this to be an A-list movie. The international cut would end up running about 160 minutes, so about 12 minutes were cut out of Toby Hooper's originally intended cut. The U.S. version was even worse. It cut 15 more minutes from that international cut, and that gave it a runtime of 101 minutes. Although the international cut was unavailable on video for a long time, especially in the United States, the international cut is now the choice that you will go to if you purchase the Blu-ray or see it streaming. Oftentimes, it's the international cut. Life Force was not the original title of the film. It was written in the screenplay form under the same title as the book, The Space Vampires. Canon Films, though, who already had a reputation for producing low-budget B-movies, thought that people were going to assume that it was the same kind of low-budget movie, the trashy movies that they tended to put out. They didn't want it to be associated with that. It was going to be an entirely new type of film. They were going to rope their way into becoming a big studio. And they were betting big on this film becoming that tentpole release that they had been hoping for. And they put in $25 million of their money into the shooting budget. That made it the most expensive film that they had ever produced, really. 
they decided that Life Force had a better and more prestigious ring to it. Hooper, though, argued against it. He thought it sounded pretentious and overly serious, not at all the kind of movie that he was trying to make here. Cannon wanted a more epic feel also to the score for the American release. They injected some last-minute song cues by Michael Kamen to replace some of the tonal sounds and those rhythms that had been already done by Henry Mancini. Henry Mancini was asked but was unavailable to rescore the scenes as they were chopped down, so they brought in Michael Kamen to try to tie up, as much as he could anyway, the Henry Mancini score and to put his own overlay over it with a lot of different rhythms and different beats that gave it that space feel. John Dykstra, he had a big claim to fame. He provided the effects work for Star Wars and Star Trek, the motion picture, and the Battlestar Galactica TV series. He delivers here some pretty impressive visuals, especially in a lot of the smoke effects, the lighting, the neon look, the umbrella-like alien craft, some really, truly intense body transformations between the human actors and their desiccated counterparts. All of that was done through the use of a variety of face and body cast work. Over 400 total artists worked on Life Force. A tenth of that amount just worked on the prosthetic pieces alone. So this was a very big undertaking. But it looks really good in certain parts. Other parts, it looks <laughs> a pretty schlocky and dated in a way. In fact, you know, a lot of this was a rush job, unfortunately. So they didn't quite get the look and the sound as good as they could have done under normal circumstances. Now, despite having only seven minutes of total screen time, if you remember anything about Life Force as a film at all, it's likely going to be the nude performance from the then 19-year-old French ballerina turned actress Mathilde May. Mathilde May did not know English at the time. She had to speak her lines phonetically, and then she ended up getting dubbed over on top of that. She plays the siren-like space girl. She's billed in the credits as space girl. She's actually called Garoom in the novel. Now, Space Girl's not naturally human. She took on this shape and adopted the English language by taking it because she read the mind of Colonel Carlson and used his imagination and his notions of the perfect woman to be what was presented to him and his crew. Uh, to this end, it has led some to study this film more about the male attraction to the female form, but also their fear of it. The men in the story find Space Girl to be irresistible. She controls their minds with that allure, even though they know full well at the time that she is actually using their lustful urges to draw them to her and eventually drain them of their energy, of their essence, of their body fluids in what could be called an obvious metaphor for sexual intercourse, and in this exploration of both the attraction and the worrisome qualities that men have toward unrestrained female expression of sexuality. Now, that ties in especially as relevant to the London location. London society was especially in upheaval at losing their traditionally reserved nature to find Londoners feeding off of each other for restoration of their own life force, and that included expression of those urges toward those even of the same sex, which was fairly novel for a big mainstream release in the mid-1980s. Nevertheless, given that there was an AIDS epidemic that was running rampant, it was all over the media in the mid-1980s, the story of how the succumbing of one's lustful nature to have rampant sexual relations with anyone and anything around you, even if it infects others with this fast-moving and debilitating disease, maybe that hit a little too close to home for some to see the entertainment in this material. So because of this and many other factors, Life Force would be met at the time of its release with mostly negative reviews, in fact, almost all negative reviews, when it was released in June of 1985, although it would end up debuting at number four at the box office in its initial week of release, 
Unfortunately, it was going head-to-head with what would end up being the number one film of that week, the more positive-minded sci-fi effort that had some similarities but definitely was much more going in the other direction, Cocoon. All totaled, Life Force would garner $11.6 million in the United States. That was not even half of that $25 million production budget, and some of its failures can be chalked up to these bad reviews, but to a large extent, it can also be seen as a shift in attitudes in the mid-1980s, following the success of Steven Spielberg films. Steven Spielberg, you know, Hooper had great success with for Poltergeist, but Steven Spielberg had really changed the way that we look at aliens and alien creatures. They were not destroyer of worlds anymore. They are our friends in films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. You know, all kinds of knockoffs were getting put into theaters with aliens that were our buddies, our friends, our saviors. Uh, All these filled the theaters in the two or three years that led up to Life Force's release. I mean, not even a film that's well-regarded today, like John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, that was a much more negative portrayal of aliens. However, even though it's considered today as this all-out genre classic, you go back to the 1980s, that film didn't even get $20 million at the box office in the wake of those more family-friendly space adventures. And Carpenter's film didn't even have the additional issue of that erotic tone of Toby Hooper's story to try to contend with. Now, despite its failures at the box office at the time, Life Force would eventually, of course, like all these movies that I talk about here on this show, they would it would eventually find its audience. The audience that really appreciates it because it's weird, because it's sometimes inspired in its choices and has garnered that considerable cult following over the years among critics and fans alike. More modern critics tend to enjoy Toby Hooper's risk-taking with the story, as well as Hooper's commitment to the material, especially in how he tries to mesh the tone of the science fiction of yesteryear from the 50s and 60s into the more contemporary notions of morbid sex and that shocking violence that really took hold in the genre of horror in the 1980s. And Despite Toby Hooper's emphasis on trying to find immediacy in his film, Life Force, ironically, seems much better the more it is distanced by the time and place in cinema in which it was released into the world. And for me, I think that makes it a three-star out of four movies. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that it is recommended for people who like this kind of movie. If you like your weird movies, kind of a little bit campy, a little bit offbeat, definitely high concept and all kinds of crazy, it really is this mix of high-budget B-movie, I mean, in its totality, I think you're going to enjoy Life Force if you haven't seen it already. I don't think that this is like upper echelon 1980s film. However, I think, you know, if you give it a shot, if you're open to this kind of movie, if what I've said sounds of appeal to you, I definitely do recommend at the very least you'll have a good time, even if you don't think it's a very good movie. Because honestly, it really is not a very good movie when you put all the pieces together, but there is just something about it. Maybe it's Matilda May, I don't know. But It's definitely a very watchable and enjoyable film on a certain level. So three stars out of four is what I'm giving Life Force. So as I mentioned, this three-part series that I'm talking about is going to be looking at human beings encountering an alien and taking it aboard their spaceship or whatnot, and that alien ends up killing everyone on board. Of course, one film comes to mind, I think, above all others when you think about this film, That film did not come out in the 1980s, though. It came out in 1979, so just missing. However, its sequel did come out in the 1980s, and it's one I want to talk about. So I'm going to incorporate it into this 1980s show. I'm going to start off with Ridley Scott's 1979 all-time genre classic, Alien, 
for the next review. Of course, that will lead up to Aliens the following week. So check out Alien and Aliens for the next two weeks, and you're going to be able to keep up with reviews as they come out. So Alien, I'm really looking forward to that. I've probably seen it about 20 times. I probably don't need to rewatch it again, but I enjoy watching it so much. Of course, I will do it for the review for next week. So definitely looking forward to that. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have your own thoughts on anything I talked about today about Life Forest or anything else or where you want the show to go, eventually you can find my contact information at my website at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. <laughs> <laughs>